All right. Good morning, New Life East. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, I'm really excited to be here today. I, uh, I heard a preacher say one time that if you go preach somewhere once with somebody, you are a guest. If you go preach somewhere twice with somebody, you are a friend. And if you make it to round three, you become family. So, uh, so today is round three of, of me getting to preach with East today. So I'm really, really excited to be here. If you've got your Bibles, uh, you can open up to Proverbs chapter one. That's where we're going to be today. Before we get there, I just wanted to, to echo what Pastor Colin was saying just a second ago um, about kids camp. Uh, kids camp coming up here in a couple weeks. Um, man, uh, statistically speaking, especially for families who uh, come to church, um, a kids camp or a VBS experience is, is one of the um, primary places where children ages 5 to you know, 11 years old begin their relationship with the Lord. So it's no small thing. Um, so if you have the ability, June 21st to the 24th, uh, I want to invite you to participate in that. If you don't and you have a child who's in junior high or in high school, invite them to participate and serve in it. It's an absolutely incredible opportunity to come and engage with. Um, we are opening up a series today for the summer in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs. This is an interesting book, most of which, if you grew up around the church, you heard a lot of different verses that came from this book as you were, as you were growing up. Um, it's an interesting book that we have in the Old Testament. It was written by Solomon, the son of David. Um, and we kind of ask ourselves, like, why do we have this book in the Bible? What, 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 where does this kind of land in our type of literature that we have from Scripture. And so I, I think it's important to maybe answer this question, what is Proverbs, by first maybe addressing what Proverbs is not. Okay, what Proverbs is not. So if, if you read through the Old Testament, what Proverbs is not is it's not the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It is not any of the major or the minor prophets. It's not any of the historical writings that we have in Scripture. It's what uh, scholars have come to define as biblical wisdom literature. And there are three books in the Old Testament that fall in this category. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Okay, and so when we're looking at this, what it is not is it's not law. In other words, it's not thou shall and thou shall not. Okay, that's, that's what we would kind of put within the first five books of the Bible. It's not the historic writings, okay? We're not going through an account of Israel, Israel here like we see in Joshua or Judges or First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, okay? It's not the major or minor prophets. It's not kind of talking about Israel going into exile or Israel coming out of exile. So it's not necessarily a thus saith the Lord from a prophet standpoint, but it is still the word of God, still is the word of God. And so what scholars have come to define Proverbs as is the accumulated writings of wisdom from the generations of Israel. And so we come to this, this place where it's like, okay, wait a minute. This is, this is general wisdom that's coming from the people of God throughout the Old Testament. So if we kind of keep following the vein of what it's not is it's not, um, it's, not your, it's not a math book. It's not a, it's not a magic book, for, for lack of better words. Most of the times when we're reading a, a math book, you got two plus two equals what? 
All right, well, okay, We're, we got some good math, mathematicians in here. Two plus two equals four. Or if you're, if you're like reading this spell book or something like that, you're kind of trying to go, okay, what does this, what will I do and what, what result or solution will it give me? And oftentimes people approach Proverbs this way. If I do A and B, then I should get, yeah, well, you're with me. A plus B equals C. But this isn't what Proverbs is. Proverbs is not promises. Proverbs focuses on the general rule, but not the exception. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 22.6, we see the author say, Train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they shall not depart from it. General rule, yes. However, I know there are some parents in the room that are going, it's not always true. Because it's not always true. There are exceptions to these rules. We understand that somebody can do Something with all of the wisdom in the world, and yet still things go south, don't they? We know that in the world that we live in. And so what I think is important to acknowledge here is Scripture doesn't ignore that. Scripture doesn't ignore the fact that, you know what, like terrible things happen to people that don't make sense all the time. And this is why we have the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Job in the Old Testament, where if you read the book of Job, you see a righteous man as the author defines him, and yet... All of these things take place with his life, and we don't really know how to explain it. He can make all of the the wisest choices that he possibly can, and yet bad things still happen. I think it's important that we acknowledge Scripture doesn't ignore those, but it's also important to acknowledge that Scripture does not neglect the fact that wise choices normally produce good fruit. Are you with me? Wise choices normally produce good fruit, and that's what Proverbs is getting after. We're not really diving into the deep theological hypostatic union of Jesus Christ in Proverbs. We're talking about friendships, family, parenting, finances, sexual integrity, finishing the race well, living in community well. We're getting after like the practical issues of Scripture. And so the question that's posed before us when we go to this book is how do we become wise? How do we live as wise people on earth? If you say the word wisdom in the English language, normally what's almost utilized as synonymous with wisdom in the English language is knowledge. One who knows a lot. But this wasn't the case for the Hebrew mind or the mind of one in the ancient Near East. When they used the word wisdom, defined in Hebrew, it's chachmah, okay? That's not how you say it, but that's how this, this, you know, millennial says it. It means action, skill, or applied knowledge. So to the Hebrew mind, wisdom is not simply knowledge. Wisdom is something that is applied, practiced, perfected. Are you with me? In Exodus 31, the, uh, Moses utilizes this word wisdom, hakmah, to define the artists and the craftsmen of the time. Those who had perfected their craft, who had utilized the knowledge of their craft to make something beautiful. This is the idea for wisdom in the Hebrew mind. Not that we would just know something, but that this knowledge would be applied to our lives and it would manis- manifest itself in the way we live our lives. Are you with me this morning? This is what he's getting after when he says, okay, this is what wisdom is. Somebody who not just takes, perceives, and hears, but applies to their life. Applies to their life. For the Hebrew uh, idea of wisdom in the Jewish mind, 
It was not just about making wise choices or good choices. It's about making godly choices. Are you with me? Not just wise choices, not just good choices, but godly choices. In other words, what this book is getting after is trying to teach us how to live well in God's world. How to live well in God's world. It focuses simultaneously on two things. How to embrace a life of wisdom and to neglect a life of foolishness. How to embrace a life of wisdom and how to neglect a life of foolishness. And what's important for us to realize here is that we have this book that teaches us how to live well, which means this, we live in a moral universe. We live in a moral world. There actually is a such thing as right and wrong, as good and bad. But we don't define those terms. God defines those terms. And so what Proverbs teaches us almost out the bat is that you actually don't have the right to just simply live your own truth and think it's going to live to life, lead to life. Are you with me? We can't just live our own truth. In fact, we have to have somebody define the parameters of what actually life and life flourishing looks like. And we get, the, the author in Hebrews, Solomon gets at it right out the gate. The author in Proverbs gets at it right out the gate here in chapter 1, verse 7. We're going to read the first seven verses. If you have your Bible, I want you to follow with me, and then we're going to pray. Proverbs 1, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wives, wise and their riddles. Verse 7 here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you're following me in a Bible, if you could underline that. That would be great. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to which all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we need you here. As we pose this question, how do we become wise? I pray that, Spirit, you would teach us. You would teach us. Would you wake us up? this morning, Father, to your goodness, to your grace, to your love, to your kindness, to your care, to your mercy. Help us be far less concerned about what we think about ourselves and far more concerned with what you think about us. Help us to embrace that, to see it, to hear it, to know it. So would you come and would you speak? I pray that you would protect the listener from wherever the preacher might be in error, and your spirit would come and give new life where there is death. Transform us evermore into the image of Jesus today. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you're with me this morning, can you say amen? Amen. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's clear that if we are going to learn to become wise, if we are going to learn to not just hear knowledge, but take it, apply it, so that we can live well in God's 
world, we have to learn what this statement means, the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Now, when we hear that in the English mindset, we kind of have, we associate fear with terror. Are we to be afraid of God? But that's not the case in the Hebrew mind. In the Hebrew mind, they are saying the fear of the Lord is for one to take upon themselves a right respect, reverence, and awe for God himself. It's us understanding that he is God and we are not. We live in his world. We live our life based on his standards, not our own. And as you read through all of Scripture, you see that this statement or this idea of fearing the Lord, of living life in, the, in proper orientation and perspective to God is extremely important. If you go to Psalm 33, verse 8, the psalmist says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Go over a chapter more, Psalm 34, verse 9. It says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear him have no lack. If we go back to Deuteronomy, God's giving the law to Israel and he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to what? Fear the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. To love him. To serve the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul. If you go to the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 7.1, the Apostle Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in what? The fear of God. There's something about the fear of God. Seeing God for who he actually is. And when we can see him for who he actually is, we can understand who we actually are. And we live in relationship from the, from the way in which he created it to be. And we have proper perspective, respect, reverence, awe for who he is. There are three things about the fear of the Lord that I think are important for us to note as we navigate this question. Because if we're going to embrace a life of wisdom, then we're going to have to embrace a life of fearing the Lord. And the first thing that I want to say about fearing the Lord is that it begins with humility. It begins with humility. Have you ever been in a moment where you got to see somebody humbled. Maybe you've had one yourself. I'm sure you have. Uh, this, is, this is such a delightful story to share. Back when I was a, a freshman in high school, is between my freshman and sophomore year, uh, my, my, uh, my sister, she had a boyfriend, oldest sister. She's sitting right over here. Love you, sis. Um, and his name was Joey. His name was Joey. And, and so we have this thing here in Colorado Springs. If you've been a native long enough, you know that we, um, we have this, this trail. And we, some people call it like a stairway to heaven, but you've got to go through hell to get there. It's called the Manitou Incline. Have I had anybody in here do the incline before? All right. The whole, whole like eight of you. Okay. If you haven't done it, I encourage you to do it just to understand what I'm talking about. It is 1.2 miles of a steep grade of old cog railways, essentially some makeshift steps where you are going up on a steep grade for 1.2 miles. Well, I was taking my buddy Harrison to go do the incline, and my sister, she'd reached out and said, hey, I want to go do the incline with you guys. 
And we said, okay. And she said, I want to invite my boyfriend, Joey. We're like, yeah, sure, no problem. So we wake up at 5 a.m. We go to pick up Joey to head to the incline. We get to his house and I watch Joey walk out of the house and he's wearing jeans, leather shoes, a maroon polo. Looks like he's going to church. And he gets in the car and I said, Joey, have you ever done the incline? He said, no. I'm like, you realize what you're getting yourself into? And he said, it's 1.2 miles. It's not that big a deal. I said, okay. So we get to the trailhead. Me and my buddy Harrison, we're standing at the trailhead. And, and if you've done the incline before, you know this is like your pregame moment, right? Like you're getting set for misery and suffering all at its finest. And so you're getting everything. If you get your iPod and you're getting it set, you make sure you got your water ready to go. And then you kind of step right. And if you're one of those competitive people, you start your timer. And then you start taking your steps. We make it about 10 steps in. And I hear Joey behind me go, ugh, you guys are going to walk this? And me and my buddy stop and we turn around and we were like, do you have an alternative option? He's like, it's 1.2 miles. Run it. We stepped a little further to the side and said, be our guest. So sure enough, he starts jogging in his jeans, his polo, and his leather shoes. Maybe 50 yards later, maybe 50 yards later, we're trucking and I look up and I see a man holding that sign <laughs> right off the side of the trail. And I realize it's Joe and I go, hey, buddy, you okay? And he goes, yeah, I'm just, I'm waiting for your sister. I was like, oh, now you, now you decide to be a good boyfriend. Okay. All right. We'll see you at the top. He goes, great. Me and my buddy Harrison, we get going. We make it to the top. You make it to that top, you know that you fall over, you either throw up, you can't breathe, you sip water, you just try to avoid looking down, but it feels really good. After about a minute, two minutes, three minutes, you begin to like get your strength back. And then if you went with a group and you beat anybody, you're waiting at the top trying to encourage them. Five minutes pass by, 10 minutes pass by, 15 minutes pass by. The next thing you know, my sister's walking up the top of the incline. I'm like, sis. Where's Joey? <laughs> well, he stopped before the fall summit. Really? Really? Where's it? She's like, I don't know if he's coming up. So we waited 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. I said, all right, we're capping out at 45. If he doesn't make it, we're going to start making our way back down. Joey never made it to the top that day. So we go walking back down the incline. We're looking for him all down the incline. Do not find him. We get to the very bottom. We walk to our car. And there's Joey sitting on the hood. <laughs> I said, bro, what happened? And he's like, oh, man, my, my nose started hurting. I'm like, what do you mean your nose started hurting? Like, what does that have to do with your legs and your lungs? He's like, oh, my nose started hurting. I couldn't breathe. So I just came back down. And there's a moment where it's just like when you get to watch somebody realize that they weren't all that in a bag of chips, that just feels awesome, you know what I mean? Just feels, and especially when it's your older sister's boyfriend. Needless to say, Joey didn't make it into the family. And praise God for that too, because my sister married Pastor Andrew Cantrell, who was leading worship for us here just a second ago. About to have their firstborn child here in about a month. 
I don't know what she was thinking would, you know, train up a child in the way that she's the exception. It didn't always work. Didn't, but here's, here's the thing. There's something about when we see something the way it was intended to be seen, we have the sense of respect, reverence, and awe that we are supposed to have for it. Are you with me? What the the writer of Proverbs is saying here, what Solomon is trying to say is, look, unless you can see God for who he is, you will not be able to live a life filled with wisdom. Unless you are able to take your perspective and shift it, humble yourself and realize that you are not God. You are not God. You don't get to define parameters for what is right, what is wrong, you will never be able to embrace not just a life of good choices, but of godly choices because you do not know God for who he truly is. Now, here's the thing. The more clearly we can see God for who he is, we realize, wait a minute, we were made in Imago Dei, the image of God. So in essence, to understand who God is is to better understand who we are, who we are. And so the fear of the Lord must begin with humility. I am not God. I am not all that in a bag of chips, but he is. And if I want to live well in his world, I might as well take notice to what he says is life, what he says is death. What he says is holy, what he says is unholy. What he says is good, what he says is evil. What he says is wise, and what he says is foolish. Are you with me this morning? The fear of the Lord begins with humility. But it doesn't just stop there. The fear of the Lord is cultivated in community. The the, the Solomon in Proverbs, he acknowledges this directly, that actually, in fact, one cannot become wise by themselves. Proverbs 13, verse 20, Solomon says this, whoever walks with the wise becomes what? Wise. Because the companion of fools will suffer harm. He who walks with the wise grows wise. So if we're going to take this in order, if we begin to orient our lives to see who God is, to begin a healthy fear of the Lord, a healthy perspective. What's the destination of beginning to see that truth for what it is? It's not isolation. It's not loneliness. It's a community. This is why we come to church every weekend. This is why we gather as the people of God all the time. I have people ask all the time as somebody who works at a church, what's the point in gathering anymore? Why do you guys do it? I mean, everybody's got every resource available to them, every teaching available to them, every good form of worship available to them online. What's the point of gathering? Because we understand that the fear of the Lord drives us into community, into a family. If you you go into the New Testament, you actually see Jesus' language talks about the people of God as family, as brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. Mark chapter 12, you have Jesus teaching in the synagogue and you have his mother and his brothers come to to try to speak to him and somebody comes up and says, hey Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're waiting for you outside and Jesus looks at him and goes, who are my mothers, my brothers, my sisters? These here, they are my mothers, my brothers, my sisters. Those who do the will of God, that is my family. 
If you fast forward going into the New Testament with the Apostle Paul, he takes the family language and he makes it more intimate. He calls it a body. Romans 12, verse 4, this is what the Apostle Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one, an- one of another. So what he's saying there is he's like, not only are we a body together in Christ, but at the end of that text, he says, we're members of one another. So not only as the people of God, do you belong to Christ, but in fact, you belong to one another. The more clearly you see who God is and orient your life around that truth, the more you're going to find yourself drawn into the ecosystem of the family of God. You cannot become wise. You cannot grow in wisdom by yourself. Are you with me, church? You cannot grow in wisdom by yourself. It takes a family. It takes a community. And that's not just all that takes place there. When you're a family together, when you're a body with one another, what happens is you get to rejoice with those who rejoice and you get to weep with those who weep. The pain of one member of the community becomes the pain of the community. The joy of the community becomes, the the joy of one member becomes the joy of the community. Paul reiterates this again in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, when he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There's something about having people near you that give life, strength, hope, wisdom. Uh, 13 weeks ago, I had the unfortunate uh, privilege, if you can remember, of rupturing my Achilles. Snapped, right in half, rolled up into my calf. Worst day ever. Two days later, I went under the knife. I had surgery. Never had surgery before. It was the worst thing ever. I come out of surgery, and, and you don't realize how much you are not meant to do like life alone until you're like coming out of anesthesia, and you need to climb back into your house. You need to go to the bathroom. You need to take a shower. You need to eat food. And it's like having my wife there was one of the most like significant moments of going, I can't, I can't do this by myself. I'm so frustrated. Two weeks after getting the, out of the cast, they put me in a, in a non-weight-bearing boot, and I had to crutch around for four more weeks. I, I had the privilege of preaching here at East with that boot. If you remember, I had to crawl up on stage, crawl down off stage. And I remember being so frustrated because I'm an active person. I mean, I'm the youth pastor. What good is a youth pastor who can't play? Like every Tuesday, I'm bringing my junior and senior guys out to John Venezia Park saying, let's play spikeball. And I'm having to stand and watch because I can't stand on two feet. And I'm so miserable. And I'm like, I'm ready to get back to the gym. And I'm, I, I'd go to the gym and I'd try to catch and I'd realize I can't pick up any of the weights. I can't put anyway. So I'm either grabbing weights and hopping on one foot or I can't do anything at all. And I, I remember I had a good buddy, Troy, he's one of my best friends. He realized how miserable I was, and he goes, you know, hey, I'll go to the gym with you, and I'll just pick up the weights for you. I go upstairs, crutch over to the bench, set my crutches down, and he'd grab the weights, walk them over to me, put them in my hands. And he'd let me lift, and I'd finish, and I'd stand up, and he'd grab them, and he'd take them back. Hour, hour at a time, he'd do that three times a week with me, three, four weeks. 
And as I was preaching here at East on the last week that I had that non that non-bloating Buddha, I, I got to meet a couple here, Matthew and Ashley Kudron, who are PTs. And they came up to me after first service, and we say, hey, we heard your story. We are here for you if you need anything. Gave me their numbers. Her, her husband's been walking with me in PT for the last five weeks. Brothers and sisters, when we follow Jesus, we are thrust into the family of God where we cannot do life alone. You know why? Because we were never meant to. We were never meant to. What becomes, what our joys are becomes the community's joy. What becomes our pain is the community's pain. You know, one of the best illustrations I have for this is my, uh, my assistant in student ministries, Catherine Gerstenberg. She's a longtime family friend of my wife's. We grew up together. Two and a half years ago, we got the most devastating call that we've ever received up to this point. It's three o'clock in the morning. We get, my wife gets a call, she picks it up, she answers it, and she walks outside the room, and within five seconds, I hear my wife wailing in tears. I rush out of bed, and I come out, and I go, what happened? And she said, Johnny's younger brother, Catherine's younger brother, Johnny, just took his life. So I said, okay, we got dressed, and we drove straight to the Gerstenberg family's house, and we wept with them for hours, hours. And the days later, we continue to weep with them. A week later, months later, we've continued to weep and mourn for the loss of his life. And we are two and a half years later, and we're still mourning the loss of his life. Two weeks ago, Catherine got to stand up on the altar and give herself in holy matrimony to her husband, who's, who's now Carson. And they became one. And here's what I rem remarked most about this day, was getting to sit there during the ceremony, and Daniel Grothy, Pastor Daniel Grothy got up. And I remember taking back because it was Pastor Daniel Grothy who officiated the funeral two and a half years ago. And I remember watching Daniel, Pastor Daniel with his family, and he says, I know this is tough, but Jesus is here, he's enough, and he's faithful in the lowest of the lows with this family. And two and a half years later, I got to see Pastor Daniel stand up and give that same message. Jesus is here, he's enough, and he is faithful as we celebrate what God is doing in this marriage right now. Brothers and sisters, this is what the fear of the Lord does. It brings us into this reality that we're not alone. We're not alone. We're put into a family. We're put into a family. And God, the, the, Solomon says, look, if you want to grow wise, you have to walk with the wise. You have to do this with family. But then comes the good news of the fear of the Lord. The good news. And that's this. The fear of the Lord is fulfilled in Jesus. Here's the danger of Proverbs. We read a book like this, and we walk away going, I need to fix my life. I need to do all of these things to make sure that I am doing life well. But the gospel is not that your life is enough. The gospel is that Jesus' life is enough. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In order to fear the Lord, in order to embrace a life of wisdom, one thing and one thing only is required, brothers and sisters. And that's that you have to receive Jesus. Receive Jesus for all that God has intended him to be. Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, he writes this. He's writing to the believers in Philippi and he says, Look, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What was it that Jesus understood that made him the wisest man on earth? I think it's important that we see it here in this text. God made flesh. He was God. But he did not count himself equal with God. I can invite the worship team up now. Did not count himself equal with God, but he emptied himself. Began with humility. He emptied himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, if we are to fear the Lord and if we want to become wise, then we have to receive God for who he has given himself as. And his name is Jesus. Will you stand with me? What is it about this man? We go to, uh, we go to Matthew 26. Jesus at the end of his life. And he's in Gethsemane. And he invites his disciples to come and, and to pray with him. And if you can remember this moment from Matthew's gospel, it's, it's a tenacious moment where, where Jesus understands what is about to happen to him. And if you've read Matthew's gospel up to this point, you realize Jesus knows that he has come to die. He knows that he's come to die. We have a moment where Pastor Beth, she just shared it in John chapter 6. He feeds the 5,000. And after feeding the 5,000, the word says that Jesus observed and knew that he was about to take them to make him their king. And so he slipped away. Overnight, he crosses the Sea of Galilee. He goes to Capernaum and the crowd wakes up. They can't find him. So they rush across the sea and they find him. And they, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he goes, look, you're not seeking me because you want to see signs you're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
You want to keep eating. And he goes, look, don't labor for food that perishes, but labor for food that endures to eternal life. He goes, I'll give you bread that will make you never go hungry again. And if you know the response, they look at him and they say, they say teacher, rabbi, give us this bread. Let us eat it so that we can have it always. And in verse 35, Jesus goes, I am the bread of life. What you're searching for, you will only find in me. You will only find in me. And as he proceeds after verse 35, he says, all those that the Father bring to me, I will never cast out. They are mine. And in verse 38, he says, I have not come to do my will, but my Father's will. We see this orienting of Jesus going, this is my Father's world. Do you see it? Matthew 26, Garden of Gethsemane, three times he says this prayer. Father, if it is possible for this cup to pass from me, would you take it? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Brothers and sisters, he was obedient even to death, death on a cross. Why? He realizes this is his father's world. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we come to the end of our service, and this is my invitation to you. As we ask ourselves the question over the next eight weeks or however long we're in this series on Proverbs, how do I become wise? It has to start with this, a receiving of Jesus, a receiving of his life. In John 3.30, you have this moment where John the Baptist's followers are looking at Jesus' ministry and they see it exploding and they come back to John the Baptist and they're like, don't you have a problem with this? Like people are leaving your ministry and going to, to this other man's. And, and John the Baptist goes, no, I have no problem with it whatsoever. And he says, don't you understand? He's the Lamb of God. It is right. This is the time for them to follow him. And in verse 30, he says these words, I must decrease. He must increase. Brothers and sisters, that is the essence of a life filled with wisdom. That we would become less and Jesus would become more. So I want to invite you to surrender to that truth today. And to receive all that God intends Jesus to be for us. And when that happens, we embrace the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. So with that being said, will you say this prayer with me? Our prayer of confession is as an act of submission, as an act of surrender to the God who has come to make all things new, to the God who defines what's right and what's wrong, to the God who defines what's good, what's evil, to the God who defines what is wise, what is foolish. Let's say this prayer together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. 
for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Jesus, would you come and would you help us see our heavenly father with right respect, right reverence, right awe as we prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord. Help us to let go of what we need to let go and help us to embrace what we need to embrace. Brothers and sisters, let's worship as we prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord.
The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you do that right now in your moment where you are standing at your seat? Would you give him thanks? With your communion elements in your hand, would you reflect? Reflect on how God is moving in your heart and your life. Would you have a moment of consciousness? Would you ask the Lord to bring to your mind the areas that you are holding back? The areas of your life where you do not have awe and wonder. The areas of your life where you do not fear the Lord. God, we ask you to invade our spaces, invade our hearts and our minds right now. And God, we receive you. For those of us in the room who have known you for a long time, we ask you to fall afresh on us. For those of us who have not received you, Lord, we, even now in this moment, we receive you. God, we want to live lives that reflect you. God, you, you did only your Father's will. That's how we want to live before you. Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take this bread and break it together? This is, this is God's body, which is broken for you. Would you take it and eat? same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and you proclaim the mystery of our faith of our faith together Christ has died Christ is risen Christ will come again would you take and drink We acknowledge what the Lord has done in our lives. We respond in, in doxology. Let's sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures Church, will you open your hands with me as I send you out with the benediction. I pray that the Lord would bless you and keep you. That he'd make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. I pray you would experience the bright, smiling, 
joyous countenance of your heavenly Father as he turns his face towards you. And I pray that you would experience a peace that passes understanding. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Thank you so much. Hey, just a couple things. I want to invite our altar ministry team to go ahead and come down if, if you would like to receive some prayer. Um, don't forget, uh, Kids Camp's coming up in a couple weeks. If you're interested in signing up, you can find it online or connect with Shailene Smith. She's somewhere around here. Um, and Rabbi Joe, this Thursday, 6.30 at New Life North in the World Prayer Center. Wednesday, Wednesday, 6.30. Wednesday, 6.30 in the World Prayer Center. Much love.